This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Despite existing laws and regulations intended to protect the rights of people with disabilities to fly on airlines, travelers with wheelchairs and medical equipment face obstacles to enjoying the freedom of movement others take for granted. Neglectful handling of equipment, lack of training, and failure to adequately accommodate these travelers have led to a public call for airlines to do more to recognize the rights of people with disabilities. We spoke to Global Gene's Director of Community Engagement, Daniel DeFabio, and founder and president of the Janssen's Foundation, Nina Nazar, about the challenges disabled airline passengers face, what the law says, and why this is a civil rights issue. Nina, Daniel, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. People love to gripe about airlines, delays, bad services, lost luggage, but for people with disabilities, air travel can be a true nightmare. There are laws and regulations requiring airlines to accommodate people who are disabled. Daniel, perhaps we can begin with the state of air travel for disabled passengers. How accommodating are airlines to the needs of these passengers? Yeah, I guess I'd have to say not accommodating enough, not by nearly enough. Um, from my personal experience with my son in his wheelchair and from those stories I hear in the rare disease community, it's very um, uh, limited efforts to accommodate, and, and they seem to be very rooted in ableism, the idea that you should be able to get from your chair to our seat, right, as an able-bodied person would, or even not to diminish someone else's situation, but even if your wheelchair use is because of, let's say, paralyzed from the waist down, that's a different set of needs and abilities. And the assumption must be from the airline point of view that something like you need the wheelchair when you're walking, but when you're in our seats, you're not walking, so you don't need it. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to introduce the rare disease component so many people with rare diseases may rely on a mobility device or a wheelchair or other medical equipment while traveling on a plane. And I think it's a chance to say, this isn't just a wheelchair, this is the wheelchair that helps for a number of things, not just the alternative to walking. It holds your head in the position you need. It holds your chest in the position you need to be able to breathe. So it's not just get these people into the standard airplane seat. I mean, that would be great if they could solve that part of the problem, but even that part of the problem isn't solved very well. For 
people with a rare disease, this is not just a, a small inconvenience on the way to Disneyland. They may depend on air travel to get to a conference, to see a medical specialist or participate in a clinical trial. Daniel, as you've interacted with the community on this issue, what do you hear from them? How significant a concern is this? Yeah, it's a great point that, you know, as a sort of basic human rights, civil right, we should all, you know, if Nina or I or our families want to get to Hawaii, we should be able to do that on a plane. But that's a, you know, a leisure activity. But we do have these sometimes medical needs to get to a certain hospital or a certain clinical trial. Uh, that was certainly the case in my own family. We were in a clinical trial in the NIH in DC, and we ended up a couple of times did it by plane, but ultimately decided we needed to do that by driving because it was too risky to travel by plane. So in, in my family, it became a real chilling effect that we grounded ourselves. We decided never to endure the lack of accommodations of getting Lucas into a seat and a seat that could support him seemed almost impossible. Um, but we've heard, yes, from a lot of people in the community uh, that have uh, just recently um, over 200 people have told us they at Global Genes have told us they have this kind of experience, these negative experiences with their travel because of usually a wheelchair, but maybe some other medical equipment too. One family said their child's wheelchair was delivered to them when they deplaned in a box. The pieces, several different pieces, like it was supposed to be an IKEA assembly or Lego assembly, you know, and. Um, a number of people have told me how they won't use their primary wheelchair when they travel by air, which is great if they have the option to use a, a less, um, you know, expensive chair that they can sort of take more risk with. But how sad is it that that's the assumption we go into this with, that we, we have to assume the wheelchair is going to be possibly lost, damaged, destroyed. And so we're, we're working around it. Let's bring Nina into the conversation. Nina, you and your sons have Janssen disease, a, a skeletal dysplasia that causes progressive growth plate abnormalities. What's the impact of the condition on you and your son's mobility? Um, yes. Um, so Janssen's affects every bone in our body, and it makes um, mobility extremely difficult. Um, so my boys and uh, and I, we depend on a power wheelchair, which is a customized wheelchair to travel. And so it does make airline travel very difficult. But before I sort of talk about some of that, I want to really go back to some of the things that Daniel said um, in the beginning. So, you know, the, the question about airline travel really is a fundamental, um, you know, human rights um, discussion. And there is the Air Carrier Access Act, um, and this describes uh, the fundamental rights of air travelers with disabilities. And it is a Bill of Rights, which was implemented July 2022, and this is a federal regulation. And the Bill of Rights actually consists of almost um, 10 different rights that all carriers, um, airlines have to abide by. And the fundamental of those is the right to be treated with dignity and respect when we fly. Um, and along with that is the right to receive information um, about the kind of services that are on offer when we, you know, when we sign up for a flight. 
what are the airline's capabilities? What are its limitations? Um, I have had an experience where, um, you know, a few hours before, no, the previous night before a flight, I was called um, and told that I wouldn't be able to fly because my wheelchair would not fit on the airline. And, you know, imagine my shock to know that mm, there are certain stowaway sizes and my wheelchair would not fit. And I had already bought the ticket and I was going to speak at an event and they, uh, and they said that to me. So the, the right to receive information at the time of buying your ticket is, an, is a fundamental right in this Bill of Rights. And in again, the right to receive information in an accessible format is also important. And the accessibility is within the airport facilities. You know, a lot of us in the rare disease space, as well as people with disabilities, you know, we fight for um, being included in these spaces. Many of us don't even realize that there are, these are our fundamental rights that we're fighting for. It's not just a a feel-good thing or, um, you know, a good Samaritan kind of feel-good thing to do. It is it is a basic human right that is afforded to us by these Bill of Rights that have been codified by federal regulation. And this, again, you know, covers service animals, traveling with assistive devices, um, having assistance on board the aircraft, um, and also, you know, having certain seating accommodations Nobody really understands that we um, are, have that opportunity to talk to, to um, you know, the airline and say that the seat will not accommodate me and I need to be able to be moved up either to the front or to have more leg room. You know, many times I have um, traveled with my boys after surgery and they have not been able to sit on a regular seat and in those circumstances they you know if the plane has available seating and arrangements they should be accommodated but they have all these um you know all these stipulations that make it extremely uncomfortable and undignified uh because they make such a big deal about it um you know they have these rules where you can't put things in front of you for a takeoff and landing but with people with disabilities, you've had surgery and your legs are just sticking out in front and you can't bend them and you need, a, you know, a pillow or a cushion or a support. Uh, those are accommodations that are needed and we have the right to, uh, to, to those accommodations. I know that there was one incident where you were sitting on the plane after you had landed and, and actually was watching your wheelchair on a conveyor belt being offloaded. What happened? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the horror story of your, you know, basically your nightmares. Mm, every time we travel, I make it a point to record, um, you know, my wheelchair uh, just so that no one will will say, well, it was broken or something like that. So I always take pictures of my wheelchair, and as it's being loaded uh, into the um, into the luggage compartment below the plane, uh, they put it onto a conveyor belt. And as they were, as when we landed, they were taking it off. It it fell off the conveyor belt. And now this is a really heavy wheelchair this is like nearly 350 to 400 pound wheelchair and they 
did not have the right equipment and they did not notice that someone had turned on the conveyor belt and there was no person holding the wheelchair as it came off the conveyor belt and it just fell right off and it and it broke and you know many times we have um said um you know no matter how much we explain how to take care of it uh to the people who are putting it on the plane we don't really get an opportunity to talk to the people who are offloading the devices. And that's where there's a lack of training, there's a lack of accountability. Uh, some of these airlines use third-party vendors, so they may not have their staff that are offloading um, you know, baggages. And no matter how much they say that everyone is trained, the airlines have so much turnover, especially in these areas, that they just cannot keep up with training everyone. And they mis, you know, mishandle, mistreat. They don't have the right equipment. You know, I've seen guys um, down uh, below where they say, um, "Don't worry about it. We're strong. It's a, it's a, you know, macho kind of talk where we're going to carry this off. Don't worry about it." And I'm saying, you know, this is dangerous for you and for everybody around you, as well as for the wheelchairs that can get damaged in this process of machoism. So. I think there's a long way to go um, for us uh, as people with disabilities to be able to travel with dignity, with making sure that our wheelchairs are not damaged when we arrive, you know, and get stuck in the airport. I mean, just like Daniel said, my kids, they don't want to travel. Like, we don't go on vacations uh, where, you know, we have to use an airline because it's so stressful. It's just not worth it. And so if I ever think about, you know, going on a vacation and, you know, and I tell my children, they're like, let's just go to the park nearby <laughs> or something like that. They don't want to fly because it's traumatic. It's very, very difficult. And, and you know, the fact is people around us, like the common um, people who are mm, just um, sort of viewing this from an external lens, they don't really understand why we're upset. They don't understand why we're, you know, uh, sh um, demanding to be treated in a certain way. Um, I my kids have uh, actually heard from um, others on the plane saying, mm, call the police on them. They're holding up the plane. And, <laughs> you know, and they've been so worried. And, you know, um, they were 11 and 8 at the time. And they were so worried. They really thought their mom was going to be arrested. So because I demanded that my wheelchair be uh, treated with respect and they had broken it and I was livid. Um, so it really, you know, it impacts the other travelers. It impacts the airlines taking off on time for their next flight because we're stuck. We're stuck on that jet bridge and we can't move. Let, let's talk about that. People who don't live in this world may think it's not a big deal. There are wheelchairs all over the airports they can give you a loaner. How specialized a piece of equipment is your wheelchair? And when damage like this occurs, what does it take to get a resolution? So let me give you an example. Um, we had damage to my son's wheelchair last June. His foot plates were, were damaged and broken by Southwest Airlines. And till today, it hasn't been repaired. That's over a year and a half now. And we still haven't got the parts for it. 
And we, so it really is very important for people to understand. This isn't about like hopping off one, um, you know, uh, one cart and using another because your cart is faulty. Um, you know, you can't move around. Like he has been, um, you know, improvising with, um, you know, makeshift um, plates and makeshift devices to use his wheelchair to go to school and other places. It's not convenient. And uh, my boys, their bones, they bend. If they're not supported, aligned properly, they can have lots of long-term disability and impact from such a uh, situation. So it's not easy. If um, every, you know, and that's what airlines really depend on because they're very good with saying, yes, file a claim and we will cover it. So airlines have a lot of good ways in which they're able to keep this out of the news because they pay for your repairs, but they don't realize that the repairs can take up to a year, a year and a half, sometimes two years. Sometimes the wheelchair is discontinued. So you can't get a certain wheelchair again and your body is used to one wheelchair. So changing it is very difficult. So those are some of the, the you know, the long-term uh, nightmares that we have to face. And the other thing is that even if we have to repair these wheelchairs, there are not enough vendors and um, companies that are nearby that can come and run and do this really quickly for you. We have to go 40 minutes to drive out to get our wheelchair assessed. And many times they will call, email, follow up. I mean, this can take months to even set up a schedule where someone's coming to assess the damage. Yeah, I have to agree so fully with Nina on, on this. I think many people, if they're not exposed to this world, may not realize some of these wheelchair chairs, it's definitely not uh let's just get you a temporary chair situation for many of us it's they can be 20 to 40 thousand dollar pieces of equipment that have been literally custom molded to your body and to refit you to a different chair means repeating that custom molding and measuring and in the best of circumstances it will take months to get these appointments and if you it would be a bad analogy to say if if your car was in the shop you know, that's an inconvenience, but you could get a rental car and you'd be relatively overcoming that inconvenience. But for so many of us, there is no temporary fix until you get the real fix. And then like Nina said, that takes a long time and it takes maybe the airlines paying or maybe your insurance has to pay. pay. And most of us are on some kind of um, assistance where you can get uh, a wheelchair every so many years, maybe five years or maybe more uh, time in between. So these losses are really significant when they're damaged or destroyed. Danny, you, you've spoken to a, a number of people about this issue. How unusual is Nina's experience? It's not unusual enough. Apparently, it happens about 29 times a day that a mobility device is damaged on an airline or 10 to 15,000 times a year. And we know this because um, a DOT policy was passed, I think in 2018 that said, airlines have to now disclose these numbers. So that's what we know since 2018. Uh, so it's far too many people. And it's, again, I the obvious example, the easy to see and capture on video example is the wheelchair. But I, I wanna mention also that there are 
other people with different rare diseases that may have to carry their equipment, which may not be a, uh, anything to do with mobility. It may be a breathing apparatus for cystic fibrosis. Um, it may be liquid medicines that exceed the number of ounces of liquid typically allowed on a plane, but these things are allowed for medical purposes, and yet the airline staff don't necessarily know that or appreciate that or accommodate that as they should. And so we also hear from people that are told, your carry-on has to be checked, and they say, no, these are vital medicines that I need in the next three hours of this flight, and they, they're not accommodating that the way they should be. Yeah, and also there are stipulations for, you know, having a companion uh, providing a certain type of assistance. Like, for example, uh, you could have a reader for a passenger who is blind or who has low vision, an interpreter for somebody who is deaf or hard of hearing, or even a safety assistant if the passenger has a disability uh, and cannot uh, assist themselves. So these are all um, under... Um, the DOT prob, uh, you know, bill of rights that I spoke about, but a lot of um, travelers don't know about this. And airlines, like Daniel mentioned, airlines do not inform uh, patients who are traveling that these are things that we can actually avail of. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention about the numbers of reported damages. So <clears throat> because we've been doing this for quite a while now, it's really important to to mention to your listeners, you know, if they're planning to travel, that the numbers do not reflect the reality. One, because unless you file a complaint with the DOT uh, through this different uh, uh, website and link, it's not getting, your damage is not being registered. So simply filing with the airline. So the airline asks you to go down and make a claim after there's a damage. And when you go down and make a claim, you are just making a claim with the airline. Now the airline has uh, up to a certain amount of time to respond to you. Now in that time, once you get over your you know, traumatic experience and have some peace of mind, you need to go online and make a DOT claim and say what happened and write out all of these details once again. However, if the airline responds to you within a certain time frame, and it doesn't mean that they have repaired your device, it's enough to just for them to say, yes, we acknowledge our error and our mistake. We're so sorry for the inconvenience. Um, here's what we're going to do. And the minute they say that, they're off the hook. So the DOT report that we then type up and write up doesn't get counted because they have acted within the time frame allotted by airlines. So often two things are happening. Travelers with disabilities don't know to make that claim in DOT. And second, sometimes even after making that claim, if the airline has responded in a timely manner, they are not getting counted as damaged. Nina, you've referred to legislation a, a couple of times. The Americans with Disability Acts includes transportation. There's also the Air Carrier Access Act, which includes rights for disabled passengers and responsibilities for carriers. Is there something missing from existing laws? Is it an implementation problem? Is it an airline attitude problem? It is the accountability piece. There is no way that any of us get compensated for any of these damages. All airlines are liable for 
is repairing the damage. Doesn't matter how many days we went without our wheelchair. Doesn't matter if I did not uh, have the ability to get to work and I have loss of pay. It doesn't matter if I missed my uh, appointment or wherever I needed to be and therefore I lost a lot of money in the process. They have, there is no law that says we have to be compensated. Now here, that is exactly where the gap is and that's what the ADA and people with disabilities have been fighting for for a long time, is to make the airlines more um, responsible and accountable in a financial monetary way. Now we just recently heard that when the when COVID uh, happened and there were lots of flights canceled, that there was um, you know a big fee and fine that was levied against them. And so when there is some kind of financial accountability, I mean we cannot sue an airline for any kind of damage, no matter you know even if they ended up breaking our legs or anything in the process, um, there's it's not a suable offense. So there is the crux of this issue. If we can find ways in which they can become financially financially accountable for some of their wrongdoings, then I think we'll see a different story. For now, it's enough to say, sorry for the inconvenience, we're sending a tech over, and that's it. They've done their job. They can go on with their life. It doesn't matter uh, at all to them. It's interesting you brought up both the ADA and the ACAA, and one of the key differences, as I understand it, is other modes of transportation, trains, buses, subways, have to comply to the ADA. But because the ACAA predates the ADA and it dealt with airlines, the thinking, I guess, at the time was, oh, the airlines already have their system, they have their policy. So they have this older policy that is less enforceable. I think one of the key differences Nina mentioned is, if it's an ADA violation, you can sue, and that puts some teeth into the process, whereas the ACAA, there's no recourse to sue. And what do you know? The compliance or the accommodation is is much weaker in the airlines. No other mass transit mode says to a person in a wheelchair, you must abandon your wheelchair to travel with us. Right, exactly. Or, you know, we don't have lavatories that are accessible. Um, so those are things that are extremely, um, you know, if we're looking at it from a policy perspective, those are things that we definitely, you know, need to rally around to change. And when Nina mentions the bathrooms, we hear so many people that rely on wheelchairs that travel by air that dehydrate themselves for the day prior. So they will not need to get up if it's an eight hour flight. They do not have the ability or it's not worth the risk to get up out of their seat and use these tiny little airplane bathrooms. The Department of Transportation says if your rights are violated, you should speak to a complaints resolution official. This is an airline employee who's an expert on disability accommodation issues. Have you had any experience dealing with these airline representatives? Have they helped resolve a problem? Yes, they have. And but again, it's all lip service. We're really sorry this happened. It should never have happened. Exactly, it should never have happened three months ago. It's happening again today. It'll happen again to you know tomorrow. Um, nothing changes, right? Mm, I did on my last experience with United, where they you know really destroyed my wheelchair, um, and you know then gave me a loaner in the meantime while they got repairs done. Um, the, you know the airline 
a complaint officer did contact me and the manager of the airport did contact me too. And, you know, at the time I said, you know, we really do need to retrain your staff. And, you know, she had asked, um, uh, you know, what kind of training should we be giving them? And then, you know, we talked about having uh, probably, you know, uh, people with disabilities like myself go in and speak to them. And then I thought, you know, which, which industry does that, you know? Um, putting the burden of training your staff on the people who you have impacted. Like, which industry does that? Like, in where in your training manual does it say that you will get people who you have wrongfully um, harmed come to train? I, I, I find that ridiculous. Um, they need to set money aside. They need to be able to hire uh, accessibility and disability um, professionals to come in and work with them. And they have to get equipment. There are airlines like United Airlines who don't have the the wheelchair cart that um, allows them to uh, safely put wheelchairs um, on board an aircraft. So they are carrying them. Uh, these, you know, these monstrous wheelchairs, which are so dang heavy, they are lifting them up to put them in the aircraft. I mean, that's a recipe for disaster. So you cannot invest um, you know, it's probably a, a thousand or two thousand dollars to get one of those wheelchair cards, but you would like to get somebody with a disability to come and tell you that. Zach Wichter of USA Today has been doing a lot of reporting on this issue and bringing national attention to it. He told the story of one disabled woman in Ireland who had to crawl off her flight. Nina, what's air travel like outside the United States? You know, that's a really great question. I was in Vancouver, um, you know, a couple of months ago for a talk, and I was really very, very surprised and impressed with their service to people with disabilities. I mean, they, their whole terminal had a dedicated walkway and a dedicated counter for people with disabilities, not like the ones you see in in uh in american airlines but you know it had uh, a nice lounge and it had so many comfortable seating options and they came and they talked to you personally i thought that was wonderful i've never seen that anywhere before um and they talked to you about different ways in which they would accommodate you on the flight and what you needed so i think that it can be done um and there are models out there that we could emulate um i just think that there is no Ultimately, there is no accountability. They don't, they do not give, um, you know, they do not care whether they are impacting us. I've actually had people from, um, you know, on an airline tell me that I travel too much. Maybe you shouldn't travel too much. And I was so shocked and horrified. I had no words to respond. Like I was shell shocked. I mean, how dare you tell me <laughs> whether I should, what I should be doing? It's none of your business. If I want to travel for work or if I want to travel anywhere, that's my business. So, yes, I, I think it's a whole culture shift along with, um, you know, having that. And they, you know, when you are the last person to deplane and you are the first person to get on and the last person to deplane and you're sitting in the airport hours after everyone has left and you're still in the airport trying to figure things out, you know that they have not thought about people with disabilities. Daniel, do you hear any anything from overseas travel than you hear in the U.S.? 
Well, I'm glad to hear Nina had a good experience with a Canadian flight, but I did see, and maybe you have too, a recent um, television news from the CBC, their show Marketplace, which followed a woman with a rare disease as she, and she was also had a trach or a ventilator in addition to her wheelchair. And that's another aspect I, I want to bring up when we talk about rare disease as a subset of maybe wheelchair users, because it's not just the seat with wheels. It's the seat that holds maybe your breathing tube or your food tube or your colostomy bag or whatever else that is medically vital to you gets wrapped up into this chair experience. And a transfer is a complicated thing. Um, so in many such situations, if someone is going to assist you in transferring from a wheelchair, they need medical training to do that. I would hazard a guess that none of the airplane staff have this training and it's 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 not an easy transfer in the best of circumstances in your home for example with a maybe an aid or a hoyer lift or things to help you when they obviously in a confined space you have limited options but it is not going to be an easy transfer for somebody into these airplane seats so the, to back to your point, Danny, um, if if people did check out that marketplace special from the CBC, they would see um, at least one example of Canada's version of these problems. Let, let me ask each of you, what advice would you give people with disabilities about how they can understand their rights and become better advocates for themselves with airlines? Daniel, how about you start? Uh, some of it is is knowing that Bill of Rights that Nina referred to. That That's a great first step. There is a little bit of maybe a baby step in the right direction when Nina mentioned not being told to the last minute that her particular airplane couldn't accommodate her size of chair in their cargo hold. First of all, that shouldn't be the case. But unfortunately, it is, and it is all too often. And some where there's a little bit of hope on this front is some airlines are now publishing in advance which airline airplane models have which size cargo holds but that's great because you can you can be informed in advance and you, and the idea here is that you would then select a different flight because that particular flight can't take your wheelchair but this is putting the problem back on the people who are most vulnerable to say again in this sort of ableist attitude you need to fit our equipment, not our equipment needs to fit you. And even our cargo hold can't fit you. So it's it's maybe a tiny step in the right direction, but it's not ideal. Yeah, I mean, um, much to what Daniel said, I think it's, you know, it's really important that we do not stop traveling. You know, it's that vicious circle of well, people with disabilities don't travel, so we don't need to make these accommodations. But we're not traveling because they're not accessible. So it's a vicious cycle. So the more we do travel, the more we will be forcing them to make the accommodations and give us the rights that we deserve. So I think the first thing is like, I've heard from several people with disability that they don't want to fly. Like I myself, you know, um, I'm just very, I'm so over it. I'm so, uh, you know, angry that I will, I insist on flying and I will fly the same airline just to see if they got it right again or they're going to make it a mess. Um, and so I have that spirit in me, but not everybody does. 
but it's important that we show up, that we are seen, because the more of us that travel, the more they're going to take that uh, as, you know, as a challenge to get it right. Uh, again, if you encounter something on your flight, you do have to document it. You know, now we are in the age of social media where you can pick up the phone and take pictures and have proof so no one can distort your story because, you know, they always do with people with disabilities try to make us seem like, you know, we're crazy. Uh, and um, the stereotype is always out there. So we have to break those stereotypes and we have the ability to do so with our devices and other um, social media platforms. So I think that the more we raise our voices, it's going to be really important because then we're going to make that change that will affect the next generation. So if you encounter a problem, for sure, speak up about it. And I know that going down and making that claim and, and writing the DOT does, it, it takes a lot of your time and you're so exhausted and so tired. And like Daniel mentioned, if you have other medical, you know, you need uh, food or you need to change your bag out, all those things, it becomes so difficult to go down. And I've heard so many people say, I don't, I didn't even bother about making the complaint. It, I, you know, it's, it's so much of a headache. But please make the complaint because we need those complaints and we need those DOT complaints as well. And keep that in mind as you're, you know, um, as you're setting out on your flight. Uh, Daniel's point about picking the right flight is so important. Um, you know, like Delta, for example, Delta doesn't have as many um, aircrafts that are accessible because of their age of the aircraft and the type of uh, aircraft, their stowaway, uh, their stowage for wheelchairs and their onboard wheelchair storage is also very, very difficult. So, and it's smaller spaces. So you really need to call them and make sure. And even if they say things like, mm, yes, we do accommodate, ask them specifically whether it's a power wheelchair. And if you have other requirements, make sure that you ask them, what are some of the things that I can, what are my rights as I travel with, you know, a service dog or I'm vision impaired? What are some of my rights? Just make sure that you know all of this before getting on board a plane. There are many rare disease people who don't live in New York City or Los Angeles. How available are these planes that are designed to accommodate them in smaller cities? So I live in Nebraska and uh, Omaha, and we don't have as many, um, you know, different airlines that fly out of here. And so we really are at the mercy of the flights that do leave out of here. And it's hard because we always have to um, have at least a minimum two flights to get anywhere. So those layovers, those change, changing flights is always very burdensome. And so, yes, to your question, not many. So if you are in a rural part or you're not in these big cities, um, you are going to be stuck for access. Daniel, you're leading an effort within Global Genes to raise awareness about this topic Global Genes has posted a petition online and it's seeking signatures from the rare disease community. Who is the petition for and what action do you want them to take? Um, well, I'm glad to say so far about 720 or more people have signed on to that. Initially, we just wrote it as an open letter and, and the community saw it and said, could you please make this a petition and can we add our names to it? So we did that. And of those, about 200 have indicated that they have a personal experience like this, a, a negative experience traveling. 
Um, but who is it for? It, we're hoping we did tag some of the legislators who have been working um, on this issue. It, it got good uh, passage in Congress, the House, but not yet in the Senate. And initially, our first piece on this was uh, to amplify what the muscular dystrophy group was doing to call people to uh, engage with their legislators to urge the passage of this. So that was one aim. But of course, if we, we've also tagged the airlines in our social media, if, if we can get the attention of the right person at the airlines, maybe that makes a difference. Maybe it embarrasses them or maybe it plays on their sense of uh, moral justice and, and, and the press too, you know, Zach Wichter, as you mentioned, has been a great ally on this issue. And I was glad to connect him to not only Nina, but um, Sean Bumstark from Two Disabled Dudes. And, and I'll continue to send him some of these rare disease stories. Cause as I said, I, I am passionate that this issue is not, is not only the broad issue of all people in wheelchairs, but the specific examples of rare disease people um, included in that conversation. So uh, we're, you know, maybe a, a best case scenario would be uh, someone from an airline contacts us and says, unfortunately, as Nina pointed out, why should it be put back on us to come up with the solutions? But at least they would be listening to some of the right people in the conversation. So that might be a possible good outcome here. And where can people go to learn more or add their name to the petition? Yeah, the easy way, go to globalgenes.org and then search airlines. But if you want the precise URL, it's globalgenes.org slash blog slash why can't people with rare diseases, wheelchairs fly major airlines. So I know that's a mouthful. I would just search airlines when you get to Global Genes. Global Genes Director of Community Engagement, Daniel DeFabio, and founder and president of the Janssen's Foundation, Nina Nazar. Daniel, Nina, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Danny. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.